The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. LinkedIn presents. I'm Maura Ahrens-Mealy, and this is The Anxious Achiever, the show that looks at the intersection of mental health and work, and how we can all do both better. Today's guest is a former executive, entrepreneur, and investor. He also invests his time in the world's future business leaders as a senior lecturer at Harvard Business School. But Martin Sinisich is also more open and honest with his students than a lot of B-School professors might be. He talks about his own experiences with fear, imposter syndrome. He's ignited by the mission to improve mental health at work. My personal experience and my experience with my, especially my MBA students, more so than my exec ed students, is that we are all navigating the sense of needing to do more, of being enough, of living up to the challenge, of living up to the brand, of you know all of these external pressures we have on ourselves that are outside of us, but that push us along often in good ways, but often in some really bad ways. A lot of us struggle with depression or anxiety as a result of those kinds of external pressures. The idea is that we have to be good enough, especially as we get into schools and jobs that are, quote, impressive. Many turn to keeping up the facade at all costs. And they do that not just in their professional lives, but in their personal lives. In fact, there's a lot of parallels between the external pressure we feel to perform and achieve at work and the pressure we put on ourselves in our personal lives to have this seemingly perfect relationship, home life, family. Like getting fired, divorce or separation can often shake people to their core, not knowing how to change that definition of a key piece of themselves. And of course, it's hard to balance while managing a high-powered career. In this conversation with Martin Sinisich, we hear how his own journey with divorce helped him shift the idea of living with fear and the advice he gives now. Gosh, you know, I'm going to tell you, I was interviewing a former Google VP yesterday. We were talking about the layoffs that are happening. And he said he's left Google and he's sort of been going around the country seeing friends who had worked at Google as long as he did, which was almost 20 years. And he said, you know, it's like their identity has been torn away from them. He had himself a a terrible episode of depression and anxiety about 10 years ago and said that it was part of it was having worked in an environment like Google where he had been the smartest person in the room, the quote best, right? For all of his life. And then he gets to an environment where everyone's the smartest person in the room and his anxiety just flared, but it became something that he just sort of learned to live with until he couldn't anymore. Does that resonate? I don't have the same experience of anxiety in the sense of kind of anxiety attacks and anxiety as a paralyzing force, you know, in a moment, the way my daughter, say, who suffers from anxiety attacks, suffers it from. I see it and my experience of it in my own life and and that of, of many around me is more kind of a generalized sense of I got to keep up. 
or I have to compete, or I have to do what the other people are doing, or I'm not living up to some standard that is kind of ill-defined, and, and even who defines it is often not clear. Right. But this this general sense of having to always push. Mm-hmm. For yourself, was that always who you were? Yeah. <laughs> I spent a huge part of my life living to other people's standards. And while, of course, what other people think matters, and, and I still know and recognize my desire for and the pleasure I get and validation from others and, and those kinds of things, that actual push for me started very young, right? You're expected to behave certain way. I was raised in a pretty conservative Catholic household, and you're expected to behave certain ways. You're expected to confess your sins periodically. You're supposed, you're expected to you know, early on, it was, gee, Martin, maybe you'll become a priest. Or then when that, it became pretty clear that wasn't it. It was, oh, of course, you're going to be a, a lawyer or you're going to get an MBA and be a titan of Wall Street. Or there were all these kind of these standards and expectations around doing well in high school, doing well in college, going on to graduate school. There were external things that never kind of felt right for me. And I pushed back against them a lot, but I didn't have the language and I didn't have the frameworks to understand the dynamic that was going on until much later in life, closer to when I turned 50. One of the trends I'm seeing is that in very high-pressure environments, there is a larger awareness that a lot of people are feeling this way and that it may not be the individual's responsibility to change, but rather the environment or the employer's responsibility to address these feelings and help people my friend used the term self-actualize, but I don't know if that's right. But but that this is something that employers need to address when they have a group of incredibly high-achieving people together. Do you see merit in that? I do. I think it's extraordinarily difficult for an employer, a large employer especially, to do this in the kind of systemic cultural way that's needed. Yeah. You can't address this with exercises or, you know, periodic training or periodic retreats. It has to be kind of bred into the whole culture of the place. Frankly, one of my great delights in being a member of the faculty at Harvard at the business school is, in fact, that that culture of excellence uh, married with a culture of healthy dynamics and a long view of performance and a long view of capability is one of the healthiest that I've seen from a mental health perspective. And the school does do explicit things and sends periodic emails on here, the various resources you have available to you. And, you know, they do all the things that you would expect a large employer to do. But more importantly, the culture tends to be one of, in my experience, of, of respect and acknowledgement that we can't all be expert at all things. And so the, the genuine kind of inquisitiveness about what people can bring to the table I think mitigates a lot of those pressures I might have felt at other large companies I worked at, such as Fidelity Investments or MBA America Bank. What are those dynamics? I think it would be instructive for anyone listening to think about how can I, as as an employer, an HR person, or culturally create different dynamics when I have a bunch of people who all used to be the smartest person in the room. Yeah, I'll give you two examples. When I first started at the business school, I went through what's called Start Week, where some of it is the standard HR stuff, you know, signing up for benefits and all that, but very little. Most of it is on culture and teaching. And we do a couple of practice teaches. And one piece of advice I got very early is, Martin, just be yourself. And that is next to useless in kind of in the abstract, right? Like, I don't know what exactly. being yourself means in the sense of 
holy cow, I'm going to stand at the well at Harvard Business School teaching an MBA class for the first time in my life. Like, what does that mean, be myself? And I heard the words, and I heard it from many, many different people in those early days, and I continue to hear it. And just last week, actually, I was talking to the professor who's now chairing the entire first-year MBA program, and I was talking about watching another teacher in the classroom and saying, wow, I really admire how Archie teaches. He had such mastery of the subject in the classroom, and there was humor, and it felt natural, and the students were engaged and laughing and, and listening. I said, I wish I could teach like that. And Mitch, <laughs> Mitch kind of smiled and said, Martin, that's not who you are. And he said it totally without judgment. In fact, he, he, he then smiled and kind of hugged me. It was like, you have to be who you are in that classroom, whether it's intense and focused and hardcore, or whether it's humorous and cracking jokes, but the effectiveness in the classroom, the effectiveness with the students, and, and we try to model this on the faculty, is for us to bring our best selves to the table and in a genuine kind of environment of inquiry, which is kind of fundamental to the case method that we use, we're approaching everything as questions to which we may not have the right answer. And that frees us, I think, a great deal to be ourselves. And it reduces the anxiety because, yes, you're expected to master and know a lot of stuff. And yet the real skill, the real craft is asking the right questions. I want to tease that out because that feels, not to get all over, it feels like an aha moment to me to approach it from the perspective that you don't have the right answer, even though you're the authority, you're the teacher, you're the guy in the front of the room. It, it happens pretty frequently in a classroom. And it opens the conversation, frankly, for the professor and frankly, for the students who can have, you know, reasonable perspectives and opinions without necessarily having mastery of the underlying theory. In your corporate career, did you ever have a colleague or a manager or a boss who did this? I've been blessed with so many good mentors over the course of my career, and a few really stand out. Perhaps the the one who most comes to mind with that question is Steve Aiken at Fidelity Investments. When I worked for him, he was the chief information officer. He later was the vice chairman of the company. And he took me under his wing and, and offered me some mentoring uh, while I was there. I remember sitting at dinner one night and railing about something some other group wasn't doing right. And I had all the answers. I was a 32-year-old VP and I thought I was hot stuff. Um, <laughs> and after I kind of ran out of steam, he paused. He said, Martin, I learned a while ago that being effective is more important than being right. <laughs> and those words have stuck with me over the last 25 years. And they resonate more and more with me, the older and hopefully the kind of the wiser I get. And not just in a business context, but in a relationship context as well, right? I Elaine and I have a, a discussion, a disagreement on something. You know, I have to ask myself, how, how important is it for me to be right in this moment? And how important is the relationship? And, and what are the trade-offs here? And the same happens in a work context. And that fundamental being effective is more important than being right serves as kind of the foundation to my approach to teaching and to colleagues of asking lots of questions. Mm. It feeds a little bit the imposter syndrome, right? Because it, it lets me not have to prove my own brilliance, so to speak. And yet it also means I'm almost constantly in learning and observing mode. And there's kind of a different aspect of, of observation in life that comes from that. Oh my gosh, Martin, I have to tell you, I'm resonating so deeply because I actually was last night, I, I knew something that my husband didn't. And it was in the context of our child's medical crisis, right? So very high stakes. And I thought, this doesn't matter that you're right. Like, 
let it go. Stop being such an achiever. This is about you two being a team through this horrible time. You know, it's just, I always want to be right. Yeah. (laughs) I was having a similar conversation with somebody a few days ago. And the phrasing that this person used was talking about a third person. He wants to be right more than he wants to be happy. Ooh. Is, is kind of another twist on it, right? And I think we all do it at different times. We all do it at different times. And I think, you know, obviously, well, I want to talk about your imposter syndrome. Like when you come into a new environment, as I would imagine, you know, you coming into HBS or anyone who's pushed themselves and gets to a place where they have a lot of respect for the place. The question is, do I need to be right to prove that I should be here? Or what else should I be, right? That's the question we ought to ask ourselves, but sometimes we just want to be right to prove ourselves. Yeah. And in some contexts, in, in some professional cultural contexts, it's critical that you be right, because if you're wrong, you'll be pummeled, right? And, right? and so the question for the employer is, how do I create a culture that supports someone being wrong and in which the colleagues come around because it's really only on points of facts that one can be right or wrong, right? Not interpretation or, I mean, points of logic, perhaps. There could be flaws in the logic, but- Decisions. I think decisions, you can be right or wrong. Well, decisions, I think, can be right or wrong. And yet, again, something somebody said to me a long time ago, if you have a good process and trust it, the outcome will reveal itself. And I think bad decisions taken from a good process are still not bad decisions. They may be bad in retrospect, but taken following an accepted and well-tested process in which the right deliberation was taken and the right factors were considered, such a decision may still be wrong in retrospect. And yet in that moment, it's the best decision you have with the tools and data and input that you can possibly gather. Right. I think one of the things that I have worked hard on in the past 15, 10 years is that issue of like, I don't have to be right. I have to bring together the people who will get to the right answer. Mm-hmm. Like I, I think that's a skill of mine. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I wrestle with as an achiever is I often then don't get credit. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I think that that's a side effect, if you will, of not having to be right, is that you could be overlooked. And that could affect someone's career, right? Especially if they're climbing. Like, how How do you balance that? Yeah. So you're, you're touching on another topic that's one of my favorite topics. And I talk about it almost every semester with my MBA students. And that is fear, right? Mm. You're, you're expressing a fear of not being recognized, a fear of not being rewarded for the value you bring and a, a fear of kind of the measurement systems not being up to the value that you do deliver. That's at least what I heard in, in what you said. Um, and I think for me, a big part of kind of threading that needle is having a fundamental confidence in the value that I think I do bring and a conviction. And again, I'm 60 years old. I'm in a different place in my career than someone who's 30 and climbing. But I have a fundamental conviction that if I am doing what I do well, others will see it and recognize it and I will be respected for it. Whether or not it's the same thing that somebody else who has superior knowledge, superior theory, superior facts may bring. So there's this underlying confidence that that I have kind of built over the years. I'm never going to starve. I'm willing to work as hard as I have to work. I'm willing to flip burgers if I have to. I will figure out a way to pay my bills. And that is tremendously freeing in terms of not being so worried about 
the affirmation and the accolades from outside. So it's a very hard thing to do to kind of gather them all from inside. And I don't think that's really possible. I think fundamentally we're social animals and I think we all have the, the love languages. We need, you know, whether it's words of affirmation or gifts or, you know, those, those kinds of love languages, we need that from those around us. The question is, how driving are those things of our behaviors? Do they come after the behavior or do we do them in order to elicit? It's a purpose kind of question. How do you teach it to your young people who, of course, are in very different positions than you are? Or how do you help them think about it? I guess you can't teach it. Well, one can model it for sure, right? I remember, again, my first year teaching in the classroom and standing in the well and somebody asking me a, a straight up yes, no answer question. And I turned to the room, which is the first thing you do in a case classroom and maybe in any classroom, like, you know, who has an answer to this? Who has a theory on it? And, and nobody had anything on it. And I said, well, and this was hard for me to do. I said, I don't know, but I'll follow up. <laughs> and I made sure within two hours of class, they had an email blast from me, you know, with an answer to the question. So I built trust that, that I would, in fact, follow up and that I would do the research. I think when you model being able to say, I don't know, but I'll find out, Yeah, it reduces kind of other people's needs to always have the data and the facts. Yeah. Now, if it happens every day, obviously it's a problem, right? So <laughs> it's not something you can do you know, all the time. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise. A promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. A promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Laura Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast, Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. So let's talk about your imposter syndrome, because that's something that we started to talk about when we met. And you talked about your experience, as you put it, living in fear for much of your life. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I guess my question is, what happened to get you to have this big moment and this big realization in the middle of your life? Well, uh, um, kind of a long story. It revolves around my divorce. Mm -hmm. At age 50, I separated from my wife of 26 years. We raised two amazing children together. We had a warm, companionable, mutually supportive relationship for really all of those years, I wasn't getting kind of the intimacy that I wanted. It wasn't the relationship that I wanted. Mm -hmm. I knew something wasn't right, but I didn't know really know what it was. When we went to couples counseling, the therapist said to me, Martin, I want to talk to you individually, uh, you know, for a few sessions. So I spoke with him. I remember coming up here to New England, actually, I was living in North Carolina at the time and spending the weekend on a boat with some old, old, dear, dear friends and when I told him my marriage was in trouble, I remember my friend Walter saying, Martin, you got to fix that. I mean, those were the first words out of his mouth. You got to wow. fix that. And I love him for that support. And, and it's not what I needed to do, but you know, his intentions were great. But it's through the, the process of that conversation, I realized I was afraid. I was afraid of 
divorce. And again, I was raised in a conservative Catholic household. I mean, divorce was not, it was a non-starter. It was never imaginable. And it carried stigma, Mm -hmm. you know, and I realized as part of that, I'm still trying to please my mom who's already been gone for a couple of years, uh, three or four years. You know, it's amazing to me how I've spent so much of my life trying to please my parents, even long after I moved out. And frankly, even after they've been gone, my, my mom's been gone 15 years now. My dad's been gone 30, you know, and I still reflect on, gee, my parents would be proud or my parents would love if I did this or, you know, it's, and it's, it's kind of shocking when you could name that and realize that and realize that you're still trying to please other people, even, you know, after you've had some, some kind of miles, you know, on the wheels, it's just shocking to me. So I went back from that boating weekend went back to see the therapist and the therapist, the minute I opened the door, he said, Martin, something changed. What's different? And I said, I realize I've been living in fear. And he said, tell me more. He said, I'm afraid to ask Paula for a divorce. I'm afraid of her reaction. I'm afraid of what my kids will think of me. I'm afraid of what my business colleagues will think of me. I'm afraid of what my, my, my sisters will think of me. I was staying in my marriage because I was afraid. And once I could name that, it got very, not easy, but it, the, the action was evident, which is I can't live out of fear at, you know, for the next 30 or 40 years of my life. And so that was kind of the catalyst for me having that conversation with Paul and Mike's wife and telling my children. And, and it was incredibly painful for all. My daughter didn't speak to me really at all for two years. My son was angry with me, but he could express it. And, and we maintained, albeit perhaps a bit tenuous, but we maintained a relationship during that period. I've since repaired those relationships, including with Paul and Mike's wife, with whom we are cordial um, and, and set each other, you know, birthday good wishes and, and referrals when appropriate and whatnot. But that was kind of the beginning of saying, I don't want to live in fear anymore. Then I've got to figure out how not to do that. Wow. It's interesting that your good friend, his gut reaction was to push back and preserve the institution. Did you encounter that in other places? I would imagine, you know, I've been, I've only been married for 17 years, but it's like, you know, you're an institution together. You got to fix that. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. And once I made the decision, I, I mean, you know, my relationship with Walter was in no eruption. In fact, he was at my house for four hours yesterday, um, <laughs> uh, sharing a meal and, and a tub. So, I mean, the, you know, the relationship is rock solid still. But he was the first and most immediate to express that. I got all different kinds of ranges of, of feedback. I think a couple of people really did judge me. Most were kind and compassionate and said, Martin, you've got to do what you've got to do. Once you felt that, and you took those steps. Did it change your own sense of imposter feelings or your own sense of, of walking with fear? Like, what was the process? Well, no, not immediately. I mean, you know, being able to name the fear at least got me to understand what the dynamic was. Mm-hmm. I learned a lot about kind of life wisdom on the ski slope. And one of the things you can't do when you ski is lean back into the safety of the mountain behind you. You have to lean into the gravity. You have to lean into the void in front of you. It's the only way you can get the skis to do what they need to do. It's the only way you can get all the right mechanics in your body to work. And that sense of having to lean into the gravity, lean into the slope, lean into the front of the boot and not the back Mm. is a model, if you will. It's an analog for me. And I ask myself in moments of fear, what am I doing? And, And I'm more conscious of that kind of willful act of leaning into it rather than reaching back. 
every time I've done it, it has paid off almost every time. And when I reach back, most often it actually backfires. Huh. How did it backfire in your career ever? Can you think of a time? Perhaps the most obvious example I can think of is I owned and operated Planet Fitness franchises for 11 years. I was one of the very first Planet Fitness <laughs> <Really>? franchises. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, I bought my first franchise in March of 04. You're uh, truly a renaissance man, Martin. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've done a ton of different things. I was always just a little bit so afraid of failure that I didn't develop my territory as quickly as I could have and should have. I was always, oh, but what's wrong with this location? What, why might it not work? Oh, am I willing to take that financial, you know, and I'm watching my neighboring franchisees grow like weeds. And I never did that. And I, I'm convinced now looking back on it. And by the way, I mean, they were all successful. I sold very successfully to a neighboring franchisee. But interestingly, that neighboring franchisee immediately developed two sites that I had looked at and passed on. And, and they are both very successful. So it, it, it's this kind of fear thing that has held me back in life. But I'm not sure I answered your imposter syndrome question. Imposter feelings. I don't like to call it imposter syndrome. Imposter feelings. Is that something that you've, you've sort of traveled with throughout, even as you've done oh so many things? Um, I'm getting better. <laughs> I'm getting better again. I'm 60, I'll be 61 in May. So I'm getting better now. But yeah, I, I felt for a long time in corporate America, like it didn't really belong, like something just wasn't quite right, even though I was doing pretty well and, and had interesting work and interesting positions and phenomenal mentors mm. at HBS is in many ways kind of the home of imposter syndrome or imposter mm. feelings, I think, on the part of both students and faculty, right? We have so much respect for the institution and there are so many smart, capable people there. And we have so many smart, capable world leaders coming through our campus all the time it's pretty easy to feel like you don't stack up. And in my case, it's compounded by my not having the advanced degrees that I think just about all of my faculty colleagues have. It's all kind of school of hard knocks, life lessons learned on the job. And there's a feeling of, oh man, I, I don't, I, I do I really belong here? Do I really have what it takes to be a Harvard professor? Mm -hmm. And now in my fourth year in the faculty, I'm finally reaching a comfort level and, and a feeling of belonging. But it has taken me several years of just showing up and doing my best to realize, oh, it's going to be okay. And again, this is the, the fear part of me talking. Also concluding, if it all falls apart tomorrow, what will I have? I will have the incredible joy and satisfaction of having done something I truly love doing, which is the, the teaching and the learning that I get to do in that environment. And I will be fine financially. I won't not be able to pay my bills or put a roof over my head. Um, so there's absolutely no downside in the grand scheme of things and all this wonderful upside. So why am I afraid? Why am I holding back? And then do you answer your own question? All the time. I just keep doing what I do and show up. <sighs> yeah. I think, I think that living in fear becomes a habit. Mm. I think also, I think that the then... I'm just going to show up because if the worst happens, I'm going to be fine. It's almost a coping mechanism, right? I think a lot of us do it. We, we, we play out the worst case scenario and we're like, okay, I'll still survive. I might as well get dressed and show up. <laughs> you know, it's like it, 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 it mitigates the anxiety a little bit. At least I think, I think I do that. Yeah. For sure. And I think crafting a story for oneself in which the downside isn't so bad is pretty important, right? I mean, 
look, if you're wed to your things, if you're wed to your status, if you're wed to your title, if you're wed to, you know, your income, then of course you come at it from a, a stance of scarcity, a stance of not enough, a stance of, I can't afford to lose this. If you get a little bit less wed to those kinds of, of things as the measures of your success, your internal compass of success and direction, it gets a lot easier to take the chances and to have less fear of losing them. And and that, that sense of kind of abundance versus scarcity that Brene Brown talks about, I think it really starts kicking in. I want to turn it back though to marriage and family. I think that when you are, and I speak from my own experience right now, and I'd love to hear what listeners think. When you are deep in the throes of, of having a family and, and keeping a marriage going and in that phase of life, I think all of us just live in fear. I don't know if it's possible to not live in a little bit of fear, fear of loss on so many fronts. I think I agree with that. I mean, there's a phase of life, you know, obviously, once you have children, especially young children, fear of loss, fear something's going to go wrong, fear they're not going to turn out into, you know, great adults, you know, fear of missed opportunities. Uh, those are absolutely kind of governing factors, I think, for most of us as kind, loving parents who want the best for our kids. And then I think what goes alongside that often at that phase of life is just a general fear of losing oneself, right? I mean, at that stage of life, you're so invested in building a life for the kids and building a financial security for yourself that it's hard not to have those kinds of stances on life. Again, I think this is a part of the, of the risk-taking swing, right? When you have a lot to lose, you're less likely to take risks than when you have nothing to lose. So doing things that are important to not cause harm as well as to do good for your spouse, your children, your employer makes a lot of sense. Mm. How do you how do you tell your students to think about this? It's so complicated. Well, it is complicated. I, I think though the loans and the finances are are one of the governing factors for sure. So I tend to address those pretty early when students come to me, and this happens in the MBA program a lot because I teach entrepreneurship mm. and say, "Gee, should I start my business now, or you know?" What should I do after I graduate? Almost always my first question is, do you have debt? Mm -hmm. Because if you're graduating from school with one hundred fifty or $200,000 of debt, you've got to pay that back. I mean, there's just this, it's, you sign the contract, you need to do it. It's the right thing to do morally, and it's the right thing to do financially rather than bankrupt yourself early in life. So, you know, that becomes a, a limiting factor, if you will, a governing factor in what kind of employment you might seek. And so then the question is, but does that preclude you doing something entrepreneurial? Not necessarily. How can you choose? How can you craft? How can you make a set of choices that let you pursue what you want to do alongside doing what you have to do? Life for all of us has have tos. It's just, it's, it's just <laughs> the name, right? We have to go to the dentist twice a year. If we don't, we're going to have rotted teeth. I mean, it's just, right. it, nobody wants to go to the dentist, but we have to go. So we were both doing our taxes last week. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, I, I got mine done this weekend. I mean, you have to do your taxes. So I think when we're intentional about our choices, all of a sudden some different possibilities open up. I had a student a few years ago who wanted to do entrepreneurial things, had a ton of debt, he took a job with McKinsey and he's on airplanes and doing banking things with major banks all over the Pacific Rim. And on weekends, 
he and a partner bought an apartment building and a bunch of dry cleaners, and he's doing something entrepreneurial with a partner on weekends while carrying the full load that he wants to carry. And then in what little free time he has, he goes spearfishing. I mean, it's an amazing <laughs> life, and, and it's a choice. It's a choice life. It's yes. a conscious life. And it's a life that he knows is not forever. He doesn't want to work that hard all the time, but he finds it fulfilling and he's finding he can do what he needs to do, i.e. pay his bills, and what he wants to do, i.e. entrepreneurial things. I think often we limit ourselves in binary choices. Right. And I also, I think sometimes the financial obligations are, are they're centering, right? They're centering because they do give you guidelines. They do give you guardrails. You have to do For that. sure. Right. And so, you know, sure. the sky's not the limit. And, and that's helpful, actually. Right. That's it for today. Our show is produced and edited by Mary Dew. Our assistant producer and sound engineer is Nick Krinko. Many thanks to the LinkedIn Presents family and to all our guests for sharing their stories. If you love the show, tell your friends. I would love you to leave a review because they really matter in helping the show get found. You could also follow us or subscribe. If you have a question for me or you want to submit an idea for the show, find me on LinkedIn, where you can follow me, message me, I promise I'll write back, or subscribe to my newsletter for more from the Anxious Achiever world. Thanks for listening.